Well, I wonder if you've ever done that thing where you've kind of been singing along to a tune. You might, might have had the, the radio on in the car and you've just been singing along. Or you could be in a really public place, right? And you're just singing a song and you think the lyrics are right, but they're not. And you get it all, you get it all wrong. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done that. I do it pretty often. A friend of mine, Pete, we were chatting about this at the start of the year, talking about bad lyrics and how people get them mixed up. And he was saying, you know that song, Born to be Wild? Goes, Born to be Wild. Goes, I'm not going to sing too much for you tonight, but there are a few song references. I uh, had a friend, right? And you know, if you know that song, it's by Steppenwolf, uh, Born to be Wild. If you know that song, it says those same words about 50 times in the song, Born to be Wild, over and over again. And he, he had a friend, right? This friend thought the words, this is legit, were bon chippewa. <laughs> so his friend would be, would be singing, you know, go to a nightclub, bon chippewa. What are you singing, mate? It's wrong. Uh, you might have been accused of the same thing, uh, singing bon chippewa. I've made the same mistake. I don't know if you know that song by Cold Chisel. This could be sing, showing a bit of my age, Cold Chisel's Cheap Wine. Yeah, that little lyric goes... Cheap, cheap wine and three-day growth. It's kind of describing a, describing a guy who's maybe been drinking too much. For years, I would sing the lyric, cheap, cheap wine and a three-legged goat. <laughs> That's legitimately what I thought it was. And one day, Laura and I were, we were in the car, this my wife Laura, and I'm, you know, a bit of chisel on in the CD player, and, and uh, I'll sing along, cheap, cheap wine and a three-legged goat. <laughs> and she turns to me and she says, Steve, do you know what the words really are? <laughs> and I kind of said hesitantly, cheap, cheap wine and a three-legged goat. <laughs> she just laughed at me. Um, I don't even know what these things are. When you get the lyrics wrong with a song, it's actually got a name. It's called a mondegreen. Anyone know that? A mondegreen. There's a new word for you. It's the official name when you get a lyric wrong. It came from a very old song that a lot of people got wrong. I don't know the tune to this song, but apparently there was a song that had these words. It said... They've slain the Earl of Murray and laid him on the green. You know, so they killed him and they put him on the grass or something like that, laid him on the green. But a lot of people used to um, sing this song, they've slain the Earl of Murray and laid him on the green. Uh, they just thought that's what it was. So that's what, that's what it's called, a mondegreen, uh, when you get the lyrics wrong. They kind of show up all over the place. Sometimes in Christian circles, uh, you might be praying the Lord's Prayer. Someone says, Our Father in Heaven, Harold be your name. <laughs> you might have heard that one. Um, you see, we kind of get the tune, but we just mess up the details. That's what a mondegreen is. We, we think we know what we're talking about, uh, but in reality we have absolutely no idea and sometimes it's just laughable. Uh, but I think... As I've been thinking about this topic that we're doing, this three-week series on sex and relationships and marriage and singleness and all that sort of stuff, it's no laughing matter to get these lyrics mixed up, to get these things wrong. I think we're in danger of singing kind of both with our lips and our lives uh, a kind of love, sex and relationships monogram. Uh, we're in danger of that uh, because that's the world that we live in, isn't it? We live in a world that is just thoroughly confused about love, what it is, about sex, what its place is, about marriage, about singleness, all these sort of things. Uh, people are just singing the wrong tune. See, we live in a world that, on the one hand, it's kind of obsessed with the body, isn't it? We, we strive for youth, do anything, plastic surgery, all this sort of stuff, to be youthful and beautiful. 
But then, on the other hand, our world degrades the body, doesn't it? Just kind of parades it around, you know, flaunts it, treats it as nothing, something just to be on show for everyone to see. We're, we live in a world that's obsessed with, with sex. It kind of treats it as this goal of success and life. You know, you go out on Friday night with your mates and you're talking Saturday morning and, you know, if someone got laid, then that's successful, right? You know, they hold up this obsession with sex. But then at the same time, our world just degrades it, doesn't it? There's something, you know, you can buy it and you can sell it. You can watch it on TV. It's just kind of paraded in porn sites and all that sort of thing. It's cheapened. So many people, I think, cheapen sex by giving it away to just almost strangers sometimes. Uh, We live in a world that's confused, where lust is confused with love, where weddings... I kind of wanted more than the actual marriage that comes with it. Uh, where, I don't know if you've seen this, but pole dancing kits are sold in toy shops. Where G-strings are sold as underwear for children. It's so confused and wrong, isn't it? It's just the wrong lyrics. Uh, sex, you see, it sells anything. Uh, that's our world. Uh, we live in a world that's confused about these things kind of really wants to sing this love song about love, sex and marriage. And I think the danger for us as Christians is that we're so surrounded by it that we might just start singing along. We might just join in with the confusion. We'll start singing Bon Chibiwa instead of singing God's lyrics about how he wants us to live our lives. Uh, The question I want us to ask and wrestle with tonight is how do we actually guard against this danger? How do we as Christians, I want to be talking to Christians tonight, how do we as Christians kind of do that? How do we make sure we're singing God's lyrics when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to thinking about marriage, when it comes to sex? Uh, The answer, of course, uh, is the same answer that's generally out there in every week that we get up. It's to look at God's word. It's to read his song sheet, uh, to take our cues from him. Uh, We're going to be doing that over the next couple of weeks. And we're not just going to be doing kind of a topical thing. I want us to be looking at three, at two chapters in particular. We'll do it over three weeks. We're going to spend three weeks in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why we'll be doing that. We will be drawing from other parts of the Bible as we go along to fill in some details. But there's three main reasons I want us to concentrate on these two chapters in particular. Uh, the first one uh, is that 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, they're actually the longest sustained treatment of love, sex, marriage and singleness in the Bible. It's the longest time anyone sat down to kind of explain these things. So I want us to wrestle with that and and hear what God is saying through his servant Paul. The second reason uh, is actually because this is a letter, the letter to the Corinthians is a letter to Christians, it's about Christians and it's for Christians. I think sometimes when we talk about these topics of sex and relationships, it's so easy for us to just think about the world and what they're doing wrong and kind of critique that as from some kind of self-righteous point of view. But 1 Corinthians won't let us do that. In fact, that's not what we're meant to be doing as Christians. Uh, 1 Corinthians is written to Christians and for Christians. We're going to be looking at this and we're going to hear some rebuking words to ourselves. And I think that's very helpful. Thirdly, as you'll notice, uh, this 
letter to the Corinthians that we read earlier, uh, it's written originally to a world that is just like ours. Their context, or a messed up idea of sex and relationships, is just like ours. Uh, You see, it turns out that the Corinthians, they lived in a world just as confused as our world. Even though this letter was written 2,000 years ago uh, by the Apostle Paul, they faced the exact same dangers as us. So just like so many in our world, uh, the Corinthians had three things going on. They had a very low view of the body, uh, they had a low view of sex, and they had a low view of what true freedom really is. We're going to be tossing out those things a little bit as we go along. But have a look there in verses 12 and 13 as we start. Uh, You see here how they have a low view of the body and of freedom. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12, uh, Paul is kind of quoting these quotes that they would say and then he's filling in some details. So they would say, everything is permissible for me. Kind of sounds familiar to our world, doesn't it? Everything is permissible for me. That's what they say, but Paul replies, but not everything is beneficial. Uh, They say it again, everything is permissible for me. And then Paul would reply, but I will not be mastered by anything. Continuing in verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, that's what they would say. And Paul replies, yes, but God will destroy them both. You see what's happening in these verses? See what's happening here? Paul is repeating back to the Corinthians their own confused understanding of sexuality. Uh, He repeats back to them their own confused understanding of freedom, of sex, and the body. Uh, Like so many of us, the Corinthians believed in sexual freedom. Uh, The sort of freedom that uh, if you've been reading this letter so far, if, you, if you've come all the way from chapter 1, which I don't think anyone's probably done before they came here tonight, but it, by the time you get to chapter 5, you see that this kind of do-whatever-you-want permissible culture, it's led, um, it's led one guy to be sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, it's clearly not his mum, but he's sleeping with his father's wife in that context in chapter 5. Another time in chapter 6, the start of chapter 6, we see others, Christians, visiting prostitutes. Everything is permissible, they say, under the guidelines, just like our world. It's the same kind of freedom that that we see on the TV, isn't it, and the the advertising billboards. The same freedom that so often I think we as Christians attempted to embrace. Everything is permissible for me. We're free to have sex, free to express our sexuality, how we want, with who we want, when we want. As the Rolling Stones sang not so long ago, I'm free to do what I want at any old time. Seems to be a bit of a motto of our culture, doesn't it? That's what these Christians in Corinth, the Corinthians, were singing in regards to sex. And really, why not? I mean, after all, sex is just another appetite, isn't it? Uh, it's just another bodily function, isn't it? You know, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for the food. You feel hungry, what do you do? Will you dial a pizza? Get something delivered? You feel hungry for sex, what do you do? Will you dial a prostitute? Get something delivered? That's the logic, isn't it? Feel hungry for sex, just go and download pornography. Everything's permissible. 
few years ago, the Bloodhound Gang sang that song, You and Me Baby Ain't Nothing But Mammals, so let's do it like we do on the Discovery Channel. That's kind of the starkness of the belief, isn't it? You know, that's what the Corinthians were singing about sex. It's just another appetite. It's just a desire. It's only physical. It's no big deal going on. So what are you Christians getting so uptight about? And especially because, well, you know, we all know that food is for the stomach, uh, the body. Well, in the end, it's all going to get destroyed, isn't it? That's what Paul says in verse 13. Have a look there in your Bible. God will destroy them both. In the end, we're all going to die. Life's short. So why not just play hard? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Seems to be the motivation. Go out, just experience life. That's what the Corinthians said. Play around before you settle down. What's the problem with that? If we're only going to chuck this body away anyway, if it's not going to last, if we're just going to die, we might as well make the most of it while we can. Mightn't we? See, just like so many in our world, the Corinthians, they had a low view of the body, a low view of sex and a wrong view of freedom. And so in the rest of the chapter, in chapter 6, that's what Paul picks up on. And he goes on to address each of these things. Uh, He takes the confusion that the Corinthians were living in and he offers clarity with Christ. Uh, he He shows them and us some of the very first things that we need to know about love, sex and relationships. He shows us, firstly, the value of our bodies. The value of our bodies. That's what he shows us. Secondly, he'll show us the power of sex. How powerful it really is. And thirdly, he'll go on and he'll show us the supremacy of our Lord who calls us to use our freedom to follow him. So let's get stuck into it. Verse 13. So the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. That's the Lord Jesus. Maybe food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but the body is not for sexual immorality. Uh, Your body, says Paul, is for Jesus. Uh, It's made for his service. It's made for his glory. Everything you do in your body as a Christian is for him. Serve him. Glorify him. Therefore, it is totally incompatible with sexual immorality. I don't know if you remember that little tune from Sesame Street. Uh, it used to say, two of these things belong together and one of these things does not belong. Do you remember that one? Maybe we had a different Sesame Street when I was young. It's a nice little tune. Two of these things belong together and one, and one of these things does not belong. Just like that. I said I wasn't going to sing. That's the song that Paul plays here, isn't it? Two of these things belong together. The body belongs with the Lord. But sexual immorality does not belong. The body, you see, it's made for Jesus. It's made for him. Secondly, uh, your body will be raised with Jesus. Have a look there in verse 14. Verse 14, By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, the Lord there is Jesus, and he will also raise us. See this body of yours, this kind of thing that you're wearing, not your clothes, the body, the flesh, the muscles. Depends how much you've gone to the gym. Some of us have more muscles than others. This body of yours that you've got on at the moment, 
It's a keeper. Did you know that? It's not like that kind of worn out t-shirt that you're just going to chuck away when it wears out. <laughs> Thank you, shameless plug for a t-shirt. No, we're going to be wearing these bodies for eternity. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, well, don't hear me wrong. Uh, these bodies will be transformed. Uh, they'll be perfected, yes. Uh, and the change, Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15, it'll be a little bit like a seed turning into a plant, turning into a tree. But even with that, even with that transformation, in some sense, these bodies that we're wearing are coming with us to heaven. Uh, they're are keepers. They're very, very valuable. They're going to last for eternity, even with an upgrade. Made for Jesus, verse 13. Raised with Jesus, verse 14. In verse 15, united to Jesus. Verse 15 there, have a look in your Bible. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. See, just as your arms and your legs, your members, your limbs are kind of joined to your middle, your torso, so you, if you're a Christian, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are joined, you're united to Jesus. This is a theme that we're going to be exploring at Summit, how we're united to Jesus, how by the power of his Spirit we are with him. Uh, Very briefly, this theme means that because we're joined to him by his Spirit, wherever he is, that's where we are. And just as importantly, wherever we are, he's there with us. So, when it comes to sexual immorality, when you think about it, if wherever you are, Jesus is there with you, then surely that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, can you just imagine yourself having a conversation? Someone asks you, they say, oh, what are you going to get up to tonight, mate? And they say, oh, I mean, Jesus, we're just off to pick up a prostitute. Imagine saying that. Oh, I mean, Jesus, we're just going to go and watch a bit of porn. Oh, I mean, Jesus, we're going to fantasise about that guy that we saw at the gym. I mean, Jesus, we're going to do a little bit of sleeping around. We're going to tell some dirty jokes. Union with Christ, you see, it transforms the way we live. What does Paul say in verse 15? He says, never. Never ever would you drag Jesus into that sort of thing. Never would you rub your Saviour's face, your Saviour who died for you, to take away that sin, to pay for that sin. Never would you rub his face in that sin. But that's what we do if we do those sorts of things. Paul says, because you and Jesus are united, flee sexual immorality. Have no part of it. See, we're made for Jesus, we're raised with Jesus, we're united to Jesus. Don't you realise the value of your body, Paul says? You know, I wonder whether one of the reasons that many of us, many in our world in particular, are just kind of so casual about sex and sexuality, uh, you know, the things that we do, the things that we think. I wonder if it's because we think that our bodies, or at least other people's bodies, just aren't worth that much, just aren't that valuable. Now, maybe that's how you've been made to think. Maybe people have done things to you or said things to you 
to make you feel that your body is worthless and that if someone wants to accept it, then you'll give it to them at any old cost. Do you know Jesus never says that? Jesus doesn't think your body is worthless. Jesus thought, and he still thinks, that you and your body were to die for. Because he did die for you and your body. You are incredibly valuable. You are incredibly special to him. You've been made for Jesus, raised with Jesus. You're united to him. You are so incredibly valuable and precious to him. So Paul says, don't treat something so precious like something that can just be thrown around. Don't treat it as just any old thing that any old person can have at any old time. It's far too valuable for that. So it's not because God wants to ruin our fun that he is kind of says these strong words about how and what we're to do with sex. No, it's because God knows just how special and especially he knows how powerful sex really is. Uh, Paul reminds, you see, he reminds the Corinthians of the value of their body and then secondly, he reminds them of the power of sex. Have a look there in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that the two will become one flesh. See, sex, Paul says here, it's not just a bodily function. It's not just any old appetite. It's not like going and, and, and eating a meal. It's not just like going to the toilet. It's not just physical. Now, sex was designed by God to be a kind of relational superglue, if I can put it that way. Uh, sex is designed to bond two people together and to keep them together. And it's really good at its job. It's not just that sex symbolises a bond or a union. By God's design, it actually bonds and unites. It unites two people emotionally, psychologically, physically, possibly even spiritually. Sex doesn't just express a relationship. No, in God's design, it actually creates a relationship. That's how powerful sex is. That's why, despite all the ad campaigns... It takes more than a condom to have safe sex. To have safe sex, you actually need to have marriage. That's why Paul quotes from God's definition of marriage at the end of verse 16. He says, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. He says, for this reason, Genesis chapter 2 says this, verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Marriage, and we'll think about this next week. Uh, marriage is a three-week, a three, not three-week, a three-part process. <laughs> Short marriage. It's a three-part process. It's leaving, it's cleaving, and it's becoming new flesh, becoming one flesh. Uh, it's a man and a woman beginning a new, sexual, exclusive, permanent relationship. And the role of sex in that un- in that relationship is to bind that unit together, to bind it in the first place, and to keep that unit bound. Uh, in God's good design, sex is a relational superglue. Uh, modern science has actually shown us that this is true. Uh, when two people have sex, when they reach orgasm, there are chemicals released in our brain that have this powerful bonding effect. 
Uh, two main chemicals are released. The first is dopamine. Dopamine makes us crave that feeling again, something we want to have again. And the second is oxytocin. Uh, oxytocin is sometimes called the bonding chemical because it bonds us to that person. Or it actually bonds us to the source of where that pleasure came from. That's why some people, uh, because they uh, watch pornography and have orgasms as they do that, that's why some people can actually get so addicted to that process. Uh, Because they get that dopamine high, they then associate that pleasure with the woman on the internet, on their computer or in their smartphone. Now, people have been known uh, to go and buy up all the videos of one particular porn star because they have fallen in love with them, because they need them as their source of pleasure. So this is how God has created sex. Uh, it comes with this powerfully wonderful bonding agent. But friends, it can be so misused. Uh, Fisher and Brown, I've got a quote from a, a journal, the Royal Society Bulletin. In 2006, they write this. They say this falling in love phenomenon is associated with a spray of the chemical dopamine from areas in the brain associated with reward and motivation. Other chemical changes include an increase in neuropinephrine, not sure if I'm saying that right. Thank you. And a decrease in serotonin. How'd I go that one? As dopamine levels increase, it leads to the lover's high or focused attention to the loved one, rearrangement of priorities and increased energy. Say that word again. Thank you. Increase brings on sweating and a pounding heart, emotional dependence and elevated sexual desire. Dropping serotonin causes a mini obsessive compulsive state with feelings of sexual possessiveness, compulsive thinking about him or her, and a craving for emotional union with this one person. So when two people have sex, they bond to and they crave that person. You become joined to that person. Uh, It's the way God deliberately designed sex, to deepen the oneness of marriage, to deepen that one flesh union. So the more you have sex with that one person, the more those bonding brain chemicals work to bond you together. That's why Jesus says here that the two become one. That's why Paul says that if we join ourselves with a prostitute, we become one with her in body. And you see, this is a big part of the reason why sexual sin is so painful. If you've ever stuck your fingers in that kind of fair dinkum superglue and you try and rip them apart, you know how painful it is to tear them apart. If you've ever stuck yourself to another person with sexual activity, then you'll know how painful it is to tear yourselves apart. It's no wonder, Paul says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. All other sins, he says there in verse 18, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now it's true that in some sense, Sexual sin is its no worse than other sins. In verses 9 and 10 that we read earlier, uh, at least sexual sin right alongside those other sins like greed and getting drunk and other things, it's there in the same list. But in another sense, sexual sin is of a different matter, isn't it? Because you can't actually keep sexual sin at arm's length. 
Sexual sin is against your own body. Our identity and our self-worth get so tied up with our sexuality. As I know from my own experience, and I'm guessing at least from some of yours, when it comes to sexual sin, the things you see, they don't go away in a hurry, do they? Uh, The guilt you feel, it stays with you for a long time, doesn't it? Sex is powerful. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Sex is powerful, and when it's used apart from the way that God intended, it's life-destroying. It's relationship-destroying. In these verses, Paul warns us not to just muck around with sex, not to use it outside of God's design. Now, my guess is that here in this room, there are probably many of us who have already had a taste of what we've been talking about. We've experienced that pain. Uh, some right here, right now, will know firsthand the kind of pain, maybe guilt, maybe shame, that is caught up with that sexual sin. If you're one of those people and you haven't turned back to God and asked for forgiveness, then you need to come back to verses 9 and 10. Have a look there in your Bible in verses 9 and 10 and listen carefully to what God says there. He says, Do not be deceived. Do not be fooled. Do not fool yourself. You cannot do whatever you want. Why? The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. God says that if you reject him now in this life, he will reject you then. If you ignore him now in the way you think, in the way you speak, in the way, the way it comes to sex, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you just live a life of ignorance to him. You will not enter heaven. But if you have turned back, if you have asked for forgiveness, or if you're thinking about doing that right now, then you really need to hear verse 11. Have a look there at verse 11. It says, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You might be in a place where you're not able to forgive yourself just yet. But Jesus can, and he will, and he has. If you come to Jesus... You ask him for forgiveness, he will wash you clean. He will declare you not shameful, not guilty. And he's given you his spirit to confirm that in you. And so you can start living for him. You see, the facts in the end are this. This might sound stark. But hell will be full of sexually immoral people. But heaven will be full of people who used to be. That's how it works. Hell will be full of sexually immoral people who haven't turned back to God. But heaven will be full of people who used to be, who have turned to Jesus and who he has washed clean. When it comes to sexual immorality, you need to be convinced of these things. You need to be convinced of the value of your body. You need to be convinced of the power of sex. And most importantly, as we finish up, you need to be convinced of the supremacy of your Lord Jesus. I don't know if you noticed this as we've worked our way through Paul's argument, but Jesus is right at the centre of everything, isn't he? I wonder how much Jesus came up when you did sex education at school. If you're anything like me, I'm sure he didn't come up at all. But here when Paul introduces the topic and talks it through, 
Jesus is the dominant topic. He's the main theme. He's a key lyric in this song of God. You see, one of the big mistakes the Christians in Corinth made was to think that they were free to do what they wanted whenever they wanted. But of course they weren't free, were they? In verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in you? You might remember in the Old Testament, the temple was that place where God dwelt. And in that place, well, there was to be no inappropriate behaviour. It was holy where God dwelt. The purpose of the temple was to bring glory to God, to honour God's name. The fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, in the believer's body, it, it adds further weight, doesn't it, to the fact that we are not free to do whatever we want. But we have a responsibility to work hard to not sin against our bodies. But perhaps I think Paul's strongest motivation comes at the end of verse 19 and the start of verse 20. Have a look there. He says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You don't own your body. Jesus does, because he bought it. He owns it. What was the price that he paid? Well, the price was his body, his death on that cross for you. You are not your own, you see. You're not free to do whatever you want, whenever you want. He owns you. He's united to you. He lives in you by his spirit. He's made you clean. He's washed you. So the call is, if all of our life is about Jesus, if he owns us, if we're united to him, the one who died and rose for us, and the call for us is to die to sexual sin and rise to right living. There's two clear imperatives that come out in these chapters, two command words. First is in verse 18. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. The second He says, glorify God with your body. Two separate commands, but really they're just the same, the opposite sides of the same coin, aren't they? Two parts of the move from that kind of confusion of the world to the clarity offered in Christ. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. We're going to think about that second half next week, how we actually do glorify God with our body, uh, how we see how that will play out in marriage, in singleness, wherever we're at. But for now, I just want to end with thinking about three ways that I think we can flee sexual immorality, three practical things that I think we need to be doing. The first one is to take sexual immorality seriously. We need to take it seriously. It's what we've seen tonight, isn't it? The seriousness of sexual sin. Not only will those who continue in it not inherit the kingdom, but it damages our relationships. It damages us. It hurts us. But so often we just want to see how far we can go before we can get hurt. How far we can go with our boyfriend or our girlfriend. How late we can kind of scan those channels or surf the net. How flirty we can be. Uh, We think we're strong. We think we can handle the danger. We simply just don't take it seriously enough sometimes, do we? We flirt instead of flee. So firstly, take sexual immorality seriously. Secondly, do this. Decide beforehand. 
But decide beforehand what you're going to do in those moments of temptation. It's a great little verse in the book of Job. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. He made a promise to himself that his eyes, that he wouldn't look lustfully with them at a woman. Somehow Job set up this contract. I'm not sure if he signed any papers or anything. He decided that before the temptation came, he would be godly in that instance, that he would flee that particular sexual temptation. seems to me that in all our various situations of life that we find ourselves in, that's just really good advice, isn't it? Decide before the temptation comes that you're going to have nothing to do with it. Make a covenant uh, with your hand that presses that TV remote or clicks that internet link. Make a covenant and say, I'm not going to click that. I'm going to swipe it away. I'm going to click something else. Make a covenant with your tongue not to tell that dirty joke. Make a covenant with your girlfriend or your boyfriend not to sleep in the same house when no one else is around. Make a decision to bounce your eyes away if your temptation is just to stare and look lustfully. One of the things I think is very helpful to do uh, if pornography is an issue, uh, as well as reading that book, is to get something on your computer. I've got something on mine, it's called Covenant Eyes. It's based around this verse in Job. And what it does is it costs me seven bucks a month. And what it does is it knows every single website that I look at. And if any are kind of flagged as dangerous or, you know, mature, highly mature, something like that, it sends a report of those links to two of my mates. And so they know exactly what I've been looking at. And I'll tell you what, when I forget that I'm united to Jesus and he's with me in those moments, when I forget that, I remember that my two mates are going to see those things. And so I think that is a very helpful thing. Covenant Eyes, you can download it, and I think it's worth all $8 a month. But thirdly, and finally, trust God. Trust God with his design for sex. Now you see, our God, he made us. He designed us, and he really does know what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. Right? The life and the death of the, and resurrection of Jesus, I mean, they should be proof enough, shouldn't they? That God the Son would come into our world and die for us, that should show us that he wants what's best for us. So let's not second-guess God. Let's not settle for second best, but let's trust him. Let's trust his way instead of our own. C.S. Lewis, who you might know from the Narnia series, he's a Christian author, he's got this great little quote, and he says, that we as humans, we're half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us by God. He's got this illustration, he says, we're like little children who, who want to go on making mud pies in a puddle in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by a holiday at the seaside. We kind of settle for this. When you look at it, it's, it's not great. Making mud pies in a puddle when you could be making sandcastles at the beach. We're far too easily pleased, is what he says. And I want to say that sex is worth the wait. It really is. Don't throw it away. 
if you have, if it's been an issue for you, if it's something that you've fallen in, there is forgiveness in Christ. He washes you clean. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the rest of us, wait for marriage. Talk about that next week. But how about together? Let's keep each other accountable in trusting God and living his way. I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for those wonderful words that even though all of us in this room have sinned sexually in whatever way it is, whether it's been lust or sexual sin, because of your Son's death for us, you have washed us clean and you have made us new. Father, please help us to trust you with your plans for our lives. Help us to sing your lyrics of the love song that you've got <coughs> planned for us. Help us to glorify you with our body in all that we do. Amen.